Our scripture reading this morning can be found in the book of Micah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, all earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open, like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals, and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, by now, as we're making our way through the minor prophets this summer, you may have started to feel as if we are encountering a long line of depressed and angry men. There's a whole lot of judgment going on in these chapters. There's something here for us to hear about as well, though. We've noticed that the way the minor prophets work, the way the prophets tend to work, is this. There is a statement or a discussion of the reality of what's going on, And then there is some some grief over that reality, because that reality in the prophets is never very good. And then there is hope. Sometimes the hope is a little harder to discover in the minor prophets. But in Micah, we'll see the hope is evident. And the hope is not only for the ancient Israelites, but also for us. Micah, a minor prophet, not because he's insignificant, but because what he wrote isn't all that long, seven chapters, has something to say to us, and it has been compared by some commentators to the more recent classic writing of Charles Dickens. His book, his novel, A Tale of Two Cities. Well, recent, it was published in 1859, before most of us, I suggest, and yet it had some similarities. This is how it begins. A famous beginning, this novel, you'll know it. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. That's how Dickens starts A Tale of Two Cities an apt description of life during the French Revolution, and Dickens describes two cities, Paris and London, in his novel. Well, it's not a bad description, really, of the days of Micah, the ancient Palestinian Israelites, living either in the northern or the southern kingdoms, the two divided kingdoms of of Israel, the northern kingdom with its capital, Samaria, the southern kingdom with its capital, Judah, two cities, Micah begins to tell a tale of these two cities. And he says it's in the days of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah 
the kings of Judah, in part because Micah's prophecy is mainly for the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem. But he describes both cities, Samaria and Jerusalem, together in the sense that they're both in trouble. So he writes, as we would say on a timeline, sometime between 750 and 686 BC. And he speaks of what is soon to come, the fall of Samaria, and the warning of what could come, the fall of Jerusalem, unless the people respond to God's warning. Micah chapter 1 jumps quickly right into judgment. He warns right away that the Assyrians are coming, and Samaria, the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom, is in real trouble And the same will happen to Judah, but we know from history that at least for a season, King Hezekiah listened to Micah's warnings, repented of his pride, turned to God, and God spared him, and Jerusalem, at least for about a hundred years, when it would soon fall. But as we look behind the text, looking to see what's the historical reason for Micah writing the way he does, we'd have to say that there are two great concerns dominating Israel's history, Israel and Judah together at this point in time. One's an external concern, one's more internal. The external concern has to do with the foreign power Assyria, the Assyrian army, an empire that kept an invincible standing army, kept standing, in in other words, employed all the time, which was unique for those days, by the exceedingly crushing high tributes that surrounding kingdoms had to pay Assyria when they were conquered by them. The army of the Assyrians was known for its cruelty, its overwhelming power. If the Assyrians were headed your way, there would be good reason to tremble. No one seemed to ever be able to stand in their way. That's the external concern that Micah is writing within. All God's people see Assyria looming on the horizon. But Micah knows that any army, even the Assyrian army, is really only pawns in the hands of God. He uses nations and armies the way he desires. He does what he wants to do. He directs them the way he wants. So Micah's concern isn't so much about the enemy, the Assyrians, The internal concern is where he focuses in his prophecy. And the internal concern has to do with the fact that Judah, the southern kingdom, God's people, they were losing their religion. Well, it didn't look like it. They looked religious enough. In fact, church attendance was at an all-time high. Offerings week after week were overflowing. There was plenty of money in the treasury to meet all the budget demands for the year. That's what it looked like. People were attending the temple. They were giving lavish gifts in the offering. They were making great show of being religious, showing interest in God. But Micah points out that that outward embrace of religion, what might look like, to use Dickens' phrase, the best of times, wasn't really all that real. Underneath that, there was an unbelief a disbelief, an unwillingness for the God's people to be true to their God. It seems that the people and their leaders had turned their hearts away from the Lord, even while they practiced religion that seemed to honor him. 
Day after day, they didn't act like they believed him. The fruit of their unbelief was evident in the way the economy began to fall apart in Judah. The rich got richer, but the middle class began to disappear. It happened because of unlawful land seizures, deceitful business practices. Community and family life began to break down, all because the people would not turn to God. Micah puts it this way in chapter 2, the first two verses. He writes, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance." What was going on was that there were those who were getting richer and richer, but at the expense of the rest of everyone else. And there didn't seem to be any heart to stop it. There was no willingness to do what God had said, to love him with all their hearts and their souls and their strength, to love their neighbor as themselves. So as we look at the text and see what Micah writes, we see that in this tale of two cities, Jerusalem and Samaria, Samaria, with its unbroken record of evil, with no good king ever in the northern kingdom. And so during Micah's lifetime, Assyria would show up and utterly destroy Samaria, completely wipe it out, historically pretty much get rid of the northern kingdom called Israel. But again, most of Micah's prophecy is about the southern kingdom and about Jerusalem. And the warning is that what happened to Samaria can happen to you, O Jerusalem, Back in chapter 1, verse 9, we read these words, which was for Samaria, but a warning to Jerusalem. For her wound, Samaria's womb, is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. The army is close by. Judgment is this near. What will you do about it? Now again, Judah, Jerusalem, they looked real religious, They had the temple in their midst. It was God's dwelling place after all. People thronged to it still, but they had broken the moral covenant of God. Not only had the people done it, but the leaders, the priests, and most of the prophets had stepped away from God and followed their own desires. And because of that, they didn't even know what was going on with them. They thought everything was fine. We see what... The prophet says in chapter 3, if you were to flip over to verse 11 of chapter 3, it's indicative of what was happening. It says of the people of Jerusalem and of Judah, they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall overcome or come upon us. Well, presumption perhaps? Well, perhaps indeed. You know, it reminds us that there are two ways to respond to God's favor in our lives, what we call his grace, his unmerited favor. One of those ways is demonstrated right here in this verse. God's for us. Why am I worrying? We don't have to do anything. We'll just accept his goodness. He doesn't demand much of us. We'll just keep going the way we're going. In fact, we look religious. That's probably all he cares about after all. But if we were to turn to chapter 6, 
And if you flip there in verses 2 and 3, it begins to sound like a courtroom scene. And God, like a prosecuting attorney, presses his case against his very own people for breaking the covenant with them. And he says to them, Hear you, mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. God's saying to his people, how is it that you think I've been so wearisome to you that now you just ignore me? What have I done, God says, to drive you away? And he continues in verses 11 through 13. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So Micah delivering God's words to God's people, God's people who are turning their back on God, even while they're being religious looking, who are saying to God about his grace, thank you, but we're fine. We really don't need you. So Micah says in verse 13 of this same chapter 6, God's judgment, therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. So what will that look like? Verse 13, excuse me, verses 14 and 15. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. So thus the message of judgment from Micah to God's people in this chapter is that all that should be fruitful for you will no longer be fruitful. Everything that you're counting on will not turn out the way you thought. It shows us that the sinful life turns out to be not really all that satisfying. And certainly not safe, because God's judgment doesn't end just at some bad consequences in this current life. But as we know, sin disrupts life now and paralyzes the possibility of life in the future and leads to final judgment from God. Described all over the scriptures as furious and deadly and eternal. So that the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians Chapter 1, verse 9, would say of those who don't repent, they suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. See, this is the kind of warning that Micah is delivering to religious people, religious people in Jerusalem. But if we turn to stand in front of this text and say, what does it say to us? We have to be reminded that it does say something to us. And we have to be careful that we ignore that. The commentator Richard Phillips says this about particularly the minor prophets. He says, quote, One of the dangers of reading these oracles of ancient judgment is to assume that God is talking about someone other than you. And isn't it easy to do that? To read Micah and say, wow, how did they get to that condition? How did they miss it? Or to think of Micah and say, boy, it's got a message for the world around us. Boy, the people in our culture need to hear it. But to forget that the message is also for me. 
So what is it that God is saying to us? Well, reading through Micah requires us to ask a few questions, I think. And some of those questions are not easy ones. But the first one is, and that's simply this. What is it that God requires of us? What's God require? Well, the most famous verse possibly in Micah is chapter 6, verse 8, well known by many people, where this is what Micah writes. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And we say, okay, those are three things. To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with with God. We might think, well, that doesn't seem but so hard. Not too many demands. I can probably do that. Until we remember what it's really saying. What it's really saying in some kind, a bit of shorthand, if you will, is that God requires us to be like him. He requires us to be righteous. He requires us to be holy. That's what it looks like when we do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with him. And the reality is we can't do it. We simply can't do what he requires. We can't meet his demands. So it leads to a second question. If we can't meet this demand, does God offer some way for us to meet it? Does he offer some way to escape his judgment, which is so prevalent in this prophet and others? Well, Micah stands out among the prophets for the intensity and the clarity of his message of hope. And it's a message of salvation. It's a hope based not on what we do, but on the very gracious character of God himself. Because it turns out that the God who judges and speaks his words of judgment through prophets like Micah is also a God who delights in showing mercy. We heard that from Ted Polk this morning as he described what he was finding in reading through this book. We see it clearly in the verses that that Ted and Wes pointed out as so significant, chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, which is really a celebration of God's marvelous grace. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea. What an amazing message of hope. This is salvation. This is gospel. So it leads to a third question. God has stated his demand that we cannot meet. He has provided a way for us to avoid judgment. But in doing so, how can a holy God forgive sinners like us? How can he do that? It wouldn't be just for him simply to say, oh, it doesn't matter. Or you're good enough. Or my justice isn't that important. Or I'm not that holy. That would not be God. Well, God's answer through Micah is in chapter 5 about the middle, a little past the middle of this prophecy. In verse 2 and then in 4 and 5, we get words that are often quoted during Advent because they're words in Micah that point ahead hundreds of years to one who will come. And this is what he writes. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who will be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. There's no doubt that Micah foresaw the judgment that was coming to Jerusalem, that was coming first to Samaria. Those two cities would fall because of their sin, because of their disobedience, because of their rebellion against God. But he also foresaw the answer to the problem that we all have. That for the people who suffered death as a nation, exiled into Babylonia for Jerusalem and Judah, what was seeming to be a death sentence in his prophecy was also an opportunity for life. Because Micah saw the coming of a great shepherd, one who would come and shepherd his people and save them from their sin. One who alone would deserve to live, but instead would give his life to die for the sins of his people. But he would rise from the grave, and we know that union with him through faith is the way that we receive everlasting life. So we get to chapter 7 again as we wander through this prophecy. If you want to flip over to 7, if you're in your Bible, verses 7 to 9. Again, we have the prophet with great words of hope. And this is what he says. But for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Two ways to respond to God's grace. One of those, presumption, I don't need it. Thank you anyway. The other demonstrated here so clearly with brokenness and contrition for our sin, turning to God and receiving his pardon. It starts like this. Notice what he says in verse 9. I have sinned against God. It's owning the sin. It's not trying to hide it. It's not saying I'm not responsible for it or it wasn't that bad or someone else did it. It's saying I have sinned because I have sinned against him. That's the start of coming to God in repentance. But then the next two lines in verse 9, until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. I don't have to plead my cause. God does that in Christ. He executes judgment not against me, but for me in Christ. He puts my sin on him. In that place of my sin, I get Christ's righteousness. This is prelude to gospel. It's amazing stuff. So I can approach him boldly by grace, even in the midst of knowing I'm wrong, even in the midst of feeling my sin. It's an amazing thing to find such a clear message right smack dab in the Old Testament minor prophets. Our brokenness, God's forgiveness, they're side by side. I remember when I came to the knowledge of that. It first happened on a night that I recall 
for the first time in my life, being aware of my sinfulness. We call it conviction of sin. When you understand that there is a God who's holy and his demands on you are right and he is able to have those demands and it's right that he does. He's the Lord of the universe. And realizing that you're not God. In fact, you're pretty sinful. And I thought I was fairly good, pretty clean cut, didn't do a long list of things that you shouldn't be doing. (laughs) Didn't do a lot of the things I should have been doing. But the realization was that there's a disconnect. I'm broken. But it took a while for me to realize that there was a solution. Maybe the Holy Spirit took a while to get that conviction in me. It was literally months of wondering, what do I do? I have no relationship with God. I believe he exists. He's real. Before now, I never cared, but now I do. But how do I get right with him? And then one night, under the preaching of a, of a gospel minister, I remember hearing the words in such a way that God granted me faith. And it was time for me to understand and surrender to the plan of God, so demonstrated clearly even in Micah. God's saying, I have a way to cover your sin. And that way is Jesus. And so as we think of Micah the prophet, we think of these two things that sometimes we have a difficult time putting together. Our sinfulness, and yet the boldness we have available to us to go right to the throne of grace and ask for forgiveness. Do you find that sometimes you become aware of a sinful habit or pattern or something you've done or said, and you feel like, well, I could never talk to God about that. I just feel too guilty. I don't want to go to him. But Micah reminds us that's exactly what we do. We go directly to him, straight to him, right to him, knowing that he is the one who provides the rescue for us. If we feel that God is angry with us, we might lose hope. We might even begin to blame him for what's going on with us. But if we'll let God's goodness, his grace, enter into our lives, we can respond with quick repentance and quick belief. You see, the Bible always puts these things together. Our realization of our sin, God's provision of our need. Faith is walking with those two things side by side. So when we sin, let's accept the fact that God's indignation against sin is right. It is true. And let us also accept the fact that he provides the way of escape and that he will be the God he says he is, even as Micah has so clearly said it once more in those words, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his people, of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. I think the amazing message of the prophet Micah is simply this. God, our judge, is also our savior. So as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning and celebrate the fact that at the cross, Jesus took our sins and died in our place. We do that knowing that he did that so that God could do what he said he'd do in Micah chapter seven, cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea. Thanks be to God. Will those who are serving communion come forward?